All right. Here we go. All right, all right, all right. Ooh, ooh. International students. It's time for medicine. F1 pot. F1 pot. F1 pot. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the F1 Pod. We are actually officially halfway through the season, we're on episode A now, and how do we feel Raggedy as you have completed seven episodes so far as the co-host of the second season? Yeah, I feel good about it. I definitely feel like I have gotten used to talking to our listeners and sharing the stories of our mentors. It's really interesting to see how things have changed since we started recording this summer. Um, But like re-listening to the episodes definitely, you know, evokes some happy memories and makes me glad that we got to share some of the gems that our guests have shared with us. And I also feel like really excited to kind of wrap the season up so we can work on more exciting and more new things that are coming up for season three. But yeah, no, I feel I feel good. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think definitely in this season, uh, you know, both you and I are more comfortable asking questions and we will work very well. So I think we, as we went with different episodes, we definitely realized there's a better dynamic and there's more of a back and forth. There's less awkward pausing or like figuring out what to ask and how mm-hmm. we you know follow up some questions from Mm -hmm. their answers Mm -hmm. we also have a very diverse sets of guests as we are going to allude to in a bit we have interviewed residents we have interviewed physicians who are already attendings uh in the future and we also have our very first md phd uh interviewee today and we also have such a wide range of stories from you know talking about hobbies people who are pilots we have people who are already married and And we also have a lot of wide range of stories and experiences from different people. And you have, you know, we have private pilots that are flying planes on their, doing their free time. We also have people who are doing very unique, interesting research. And we have so many creative artsy people who write stories, write articles and do paintings and so many creative uh, aspects of all these med students, which Mm -hmm. are super cool. Yeah, for sure. I feel like diversity of our guests this, um, I was going to say semester, <laughs> this season has definitely been um, more. So I'm really excited to share the rest of the journey and the rest of the stories with our listeners. So for this week, we have, like you said, our first MD-PhD as our interviewee. Can you tell us a little bit about her, Zach? Yeah, so this week we have the distinct honor to interview Juan. Um, she also goes by Jay. She is as awesome as you will see in a minute. And But let me give you a brief summary of what we'll be talking about in this episode without spoiling too much. So Juwon is currently an incoming anesthesia resident at Brigham Women's Hospital as a new transplant to Boston. And she just completed her MD-PhD training at Vanderbilt. She did her undergraduate degree at Princeton and also um, you know, traveled around the world as she was growing up. So during this episode, we chatted a little bit about her colorful journey growing up around the world uh, because of her her dad worked as a diplomat for Korea and also the complex definition of home and community that has resulted from this constant moving around. And we also then chatted about her switch from molecular biology to computational genetics and specifically using these uh, tool set in psychiatric disorders due to her passion for precision medicine in the field of psycho- psychology and psychiatry. And in the end, we really delved into her role uh, in advocacy uh, in the affinity group of APAMSA as both the regional director and also advocacy chair. And she actually started the role as advocacy chair during the peak of anti-Asian racism in 2020 during the pandemic. And in the end, as we always do, we got to know her a little bit more outside of the hospital and academia and she gave us a lot of useful uh, tips and tricks and also a lot of encouragement at the end of the episode. I'm definitely not doing her justice by this brief summary. So let's just dive into the episode. And here's our interview with Juan J. Kang. So um, I can start us off. I uh, just want to welcome you uh, to join our podcast. So really honored to have you here. Um, but as you said, we'll love to get to know about, uh, like get to know about you uh, just yeah. a little bit, 
both inside of school, but also we're very interested in you outside of school. Yeah. And what you love to do for fun and how do you fill your like the limited amount of free time that you have? <laughs> yeah. So I guess I can start from my background. So I'm Korean by nationality, but my dad worked for the Korean embassy. He was a diplomat. Um, and so I had a pretty interesting childhood in that I spent a good bit of time um, my childhood in West Africa. We moved every two and a half years to a new country. And so I uh, split my time, you know, bopping back from Korea to other places, spent some time in Belgium, spent some time in Egypt. I went to Egypt for high school. Um, and then I decided to come to the U.S. for college. Um, and so that's that's when I came and I stayed since. Um, and I went to Princeton for undergrad. I was pretty open, um, but knew I liked sciences. But then um, I was actually not a pre-med at all. I think when I heard I, and it's funny that I'm an MD PhD now, cause I remember distinctly one of my friends went to an MD PhD, like info session. They came back and told me that it's this like eight year program and you have to go through all these hoops. And I was like, what, <laughs> why would anybody want to do that? But here I am now. Um, <laughs> but at the time I was pretty set on like doing science, but I, just realized I was most interested in questions that were related to, you know, changing people's lives. And so more interested in the translational questions. And so I think I took that as a cue. And then I took after graduation, um, I took tears off. But the funny thing about the my med school journey, of course, is that I applied to med school and, you know, to go straight through you apply like starting junior year. And I actually ended up not getting in anywhere. So it was not a, it was not a conscious decision to take my two years off. I was forced to do that, but it turned out well, regardless. But um, those, so those two years were very tough. I mean, I was on my OPT because um, I was on an F1 visa and the OPT is one year and then you can get a STEM extension. So it was two years. So I really knew that, you know, it was this or it, you know, I, I wasn't, I knew that I didn't want to just apply after one year. Cause that's basically like applying all over again. I didn't feel like I can change my applications really a whole lot, um, in that span of time. So I really wanted to give myself time, but at the same, like I only get one shot. So that was very nerve wracking. Had to take the MCAT twice also. And that was not fun either because <laughs> it expired. I took it too early. Um, but despite all of those things, it, it worked out, but, um, I think, you know, overall at those two years, although I, it was not a conscious decision ended up working out, I chose, um, Penn and I worked with two, well, one was basically my main PI was a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, and he was MD PhD. And the funny thing is he was a resident like looking back, that's crazy that he had a lab, um, his own lab space. He had like funding and then, you know, he had, you know, funding to like hire me to help out in the lab. But so that's looking back, it's like, how did he, he probably didn't sleep that much, but, um, so working with him and also just like being in a hospital and being working in a very, um, uh, translational uh, question. Basically I worked with LVADs and to involve like going to ORs and interacting with the patients and trying to with the whole like medical team, all those things were very, it, it opened my eyes because in Princeton, you don't have a hospital. So I didn't get to see any of those things. So I think that helped. Um, and also that also helped me realize that I really, I think I was pretty sold on the physician scientist idea. I mean, the, the cheesy, like bench to bedside really did make a lot of sense to me, um, especially when seeing patients, I think you get to, especially when you see them in person, uh, I think as a scientist, you don't get a lot of chances to see patients in person, but as a physician, you do. And I think getting to see people as human beings with lives and with families who are all going to, who are all affected by, you know, a disease. And so you get to really mesh that, you know, passion of science with a passion for just helping people. And I really felt that, you know, there might be days when the science isn't going too well, maybe the results aren't, you know, what I wanted, but you get to see, you know, patients and you really feel like when, even, even when, you know, patients are in situations when they're 
disease isn't necessarily going to get cured. I feel like a lot of the times patients come in with chronic illness and you are kind of managing it, but you're never going to get rid of it. And so I think a lot of that frustration, I think was a good channel or fodder for science, I think, because when you say that, you know, we're doing our best to work on this problem you it's not like it's not fake you're actually doing the work um so i really like that combination um and so that's that's how i decided i'll do md phd and then i applied and i got off the waitlist at vanderbilt and that's kind of how i chose vanderbilt as well <laughs> it chose it kind of chose me to some extent and it also was a great decision i mean in my interview i loved vanderbilt but um I think it worked out in that for the, all the right reasons. I, I love the f- family feel. Um, I, it's a, especially MDP is just a long journey and I've had plenty of my, my Princeton classmates who had already gone to med school and there are a couple of them who certainly didn't enjoy their time. <laughs> so I was like, Oh no, you know, I, I know, I, I think I knew that med school is tough, but I really wanted, you know, people who, are there in the trenches and you know it's I don't think anywhere you go it's not like it's not going to be tough but I think it's about the camaraderie and it's about the the feeling that you're all like um, family and in it together um so I really got that feeling vulnerable I'm so really glad and it's worked it it turned out to be quite true um in those in these past seven years um so yeah, I think I talked way too much about my science. Oh, no, 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 it's no. like, it's, I've been doing interviews like all these seasons. So I feel like it just rolls off my tongue. Yeah, no, that was amazing. And uh, you said so many interesting things and I have so many different questions that I want to ask you, <laughs> but I think I'll dive back to the first part of your answer when you talk yeah. about your childhood, right? Mm-hmm. So as someone who spent like half of your childhood in Senegal and you said you did middle school in in Belgium or maybe I read that somewhere about you yeah middle school in Belgium yep yeah and high school in Egypt and then Mm -hmm. undergrad at Princeton and then medical school at Vanderbilt so I was just you know amazed by your rich background and Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you when you think about the term home like what do you think of and what does that signify to you yeah yeah no certainly um (laughs) it's honestly one of the harder questions that patients will ask me as a medical student, or, or, you know, when you meet anyone for the first time is where you're from, because it's, it's so hard. Um, I think home for me, to be honest, is where, where people I care about are. And I say people I care about, not just my family, because I'm an only child, and it's just my parents. <laughs> and so they're, they're now in Korea, and they're retired. So that's one. But honestly, if my parents aren't in Korea, like, there's no reason for me to go there to some extent. <laughs> Um, also because I've been living apart from them, let's see, starting from senior year in high school, I never like lived with them under one roof for, um, since then, I mean, I would visit, you know, for holidays and whatnot, but, um, so there is certainly you in that situation. And I'm sure a lot of our expat students will agree to this. You, you form communities that become your family and they take care of you. And for all the missed holidays that you're not able to spend with your family, like Thanksgiving is a big one. Cause like, it's a very American holiday. <laughs> and so, um, it's a very American holiday, but at the same time, it's a very like home, like, um, nostalgia inducing holiday. So I think it's a time where a lot of students can feel very alone. Um, but I have always been surrounded by communities who you know who always invited me to their homes um and were very open and it always starts from food right I think a lot of it centers around food and so really a lot of um, love um, shared in, in that and so I think home for me has and this answer actually has been really something that's been important was I was thinking about residency as well just because it's it's a time again where it's not only about work, but your, your recharging, um, is so important just because the work is so hard. And I think home and being near home and being near people who will take care of you <laughs> has been something that's been, you know, very high on my priorities this season. And so I think right now I'd say home is like Korea where my parents are home is where my in-laws are. Cause they're very lovely 
obviously my husband is coming with me, <laughs> but my in-laws are my second family too. And uh, yeah, and lots of close friends I've formed over the years also happen to be in the Northeast. So it's it's a scattered concept for sure. It's not like, oh, that home that I lived for 20 years of my life is not, it's like the people consist that. Yeah, no, I get, I, I get that because a lot of international students who are, you know, who spent a lot of their time growing up in their home country and then now are in mm-hmm. the U.S. and maybe have hopped around a little bit before then. Um, yeah, it's definitely relatable uh, to that extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing we also like recently discovered is both of us are only child. We're oh, also really? Been in the U.S. for a while. <laughs> yeah. So we're just talking about how like especially uniquely as an international only child mm-hmm. with family far away, like how does yeah. that play into our identity. So I think that follow up follows up with my next question. I really want to ask you, um, I don't think like you don't have to elaborate on each place, but what mm-hmm. is maybe some of the places in your years, like, I know, around the globe has mm-hmm. contributed to identity the most, like you think about mm-hmm. a big piece of you and you think, wow, like it was because of these years that really was formative. And mm-hmm. I want to ask like, you know, can you think of one that you're like, oh yeah, this is a period of some hardship or some growth and that really contributed to who you are today? Yeah, I think Egypt definitely is the one that comes to my mind. Um, I think it's because I had just, you know, I was in middle school for three years um, in Korea and it was like, you know, uh, with I was in Korean school. I wasn't, I wasn't going to like an international school or anything like that. Um, and so all I knew was like kind of the Korean education system. Cause that's where all my peers were thinking about. And then I was plucked out of that and now placed in a completely new system. You know, uh, I went to an international school in Cairo and, you know, most people, they're either thinking about going to college in England or, you know, U.S., some Canada. But again, like, it's a different system. Um, so that was new. But I mean, that stressor didn't come till later. I think the biggest thing probably was obviously, like, adjusting. Sure, like, that happens um, in high school is it can be tough. But I think that the thing that I'm – that that strikes me the most is just navigating that transition, especially as I'm thinking about college and next steps. Cause my, I think it's for the first time, like my parents' knowledge is, is limited in this um, aspect. And so I really had to find mentors um, at school. I mean, beyond um, the college counselors, there were people who are really my advocates um, who you know, I think, especially in the STEM field, because what's funny is that in Korea, I think there's like cram schools and people are expected to do like, if you're do if you're in middle school, you should learn like high school level math. And if you're not already doing high school level math, you're like somehow not good enough. And so I go- coming from that, I really actually disliked math because I felt very defeated because I felt like I'm doing, I feel like I'm appropriately at my level. And yet you're telling me you're like, below average or something and so I was like I don't like this and then I came to Egypt and people were telling me oh you're you're like really good like you should actually like skip two years ahead and like you know take classes with the seniors like what and so I think I really got a change in senior of like oh positive reinforcement can be good to inspire people to be excited and so I got really excited about math and science and so here I am like continuing the STEM field. So I feel like that was also a big um, change and it definitely made a huge and lasting impact for me for sure because I'm still doing science and excited about that too. Um, but in terms of like finding mentors and advocates, I think that's a skill that I have, it's been important like in every every step of the way, even in, in like Nashville, I'd say, and I just about even if I wasn't in Nashville, I think a big part part of um, building your career, there'll be times when you'll want to find a mentor who you know is doing exactly what you want to do and who looks exactly the way you look and share all the identity. But that's all not possible. And oftentimes, you'll have to find mentors 
who may not look like you, but you know, they have, they can mentor you in different ways and they don't even have to be professionally. Like, like there are certainly people who are like my emotional mentors. They have nothing. They're not in medicine. They don't do science, but they're like great at giving life advice, (laughs) you know, objective life advice. And so I think that the finding of mentors and advocates started then and it's continued since. And I think, I think, a good part of it, of course, it's luck. You got to be lucky to find these people in your life. But I think the other thing is you also have to somewhat seek them out and and know how to ask for help. And I think that that started then. So I'd say my time in Egypt have definitely been formative in that way. Yeah, um, definitely sounds like a very rich experience. And we got a little bit of a glimpse of young Jay in that answer. <laughs> Um, so I was wondering if we could elaborate more on what was young Jay or Julian was like, and mm-hmm. what does she want to be when, I guess, growing up, you said you didn't like math um, for the most yeah. part. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of listeners can relate to that. Um, uh-huh. When did you know medicine was something that you wanted to pursue? Was it, you know, mm. one of your childhood dreams? What was that like? Nope. I mean, medicine, I don't know. I think when you're young, you're you get influenced by what's around you. So I think for a good bit, I wanted to, I would write down that I wanted to be a diplomat <laughs> without, I probably didn't even know what that meant. Like, what does a diplomat do? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, the answer is they they do many, many things. They're like jack of all trades. Um, but I think there is, when you're really young and you just like write down whatever you want, like it's your pure passion without any like, you know, parents' desires and all of that. I think I wanted to be a cartoonist and an artist. And I think there's, I still do a good bit of that too. It's, it's, I still keep my creative um, outlet. Um, so I think there's that. Um, I think... I was a curious child. I I mean I but but the thing is, I don't know, it's what's funny is that I was not a good student. <laughs> I I think I I especially in like a in a in the Korean education format where they're just kind of like memorize this. They don't really explain like why, like no context. I really didn't like that. And so <laughs> I recall not liking that um either. And uh yeah, I I don't know. I think my to be fair, my mom was very was a very pushy parent. And so I kind of like became molded by her. And what it, whatever she thought was good, but I think the other reason Egypt is really formative is I think that's when I started to just start thinking on my own. Like they didn't know, you know, what's what's a. I mean, they had some idea of what's a good college, but like in terms of like which direction to take, they had they had very little input. I mean, obviously they they were not scientists or anything, so they it wasn't them that pushed me that way, and so I feel like. Uh, through high school and certainly through college, I learned to just think about, you know, what do I like and what is it? Um, why do I find this fascinating and really unpacking that? And I think that has been something that's been an important um, learning curve for me, for sure. Talking about medicine, you are at a stage where you're going through big transitions, yeah. go through like finishing a PhD, finishing your MD almost, mm-hmm. and going on to a very exciting kind of life where you are no longer really studying. You are now mm-hmm. a fully functional doctor. I was wondering, what do you hope that life would look like post-graduation? It can mm-hmm. be about anything about specialty, location in the country, what type of yeah. practice, and like yeah. just your future aspirations in general. Yeah. I think both my biggest fear but excitement <laughs> is keeping that that passion alive about academia, about research, and about what makes physicians' life so special. Because I think there are plenty of tweets and articles about how all the reasons why physicians are going to be burnt out. There are plenty of things that are broken. And I think we are built to want to fix things. And there are plenty of things in medicine we, one human cannot fix. (laughs) And I think while that is the case, 
I, especially through this interview season, have seen plenty of people who are so excited about their work, about the patient's lives that they change. And also, especially for the research folk, I mean, that's, again, it's, you're, you're putting, you're just putting so much on your plate (laughs) and yet they, they see the, they see the value in in that. They don't see it as a sacrifice. They don't see it as like settling. They see it, they like choose that. And I think I've been fortunate to have, like, there's no life decision that I regret. And certainly there, there were things that happened because I had no other choice, like, you know, reapplying or, you know, going to Penn because of that. But I think all those things I have learned so much from um, and learned a lot and I never regret any of it. And I think if I can keep that attitude throughout residency, you know, th- through that learning curve, through feeling stupid and all of that, if I can keep that humility and keep the passion, like all the things that I say to interviewers about how this has all been exciting and this is why I'm passionate about anesthesiology and how it makes sense about my research interests, there are certainly things that will change, I'm sure, um, as I go through my training. But I think the excitement I feel about making a difference, right, I, about whether it's the way that physicians practice. I mean, that's the dream for physician scientists. But also, I think I've seen plenty of people who are so proud of the work they do through just training future physicians as well. Like education is such a big thing and thinking about ways um, to better educate, but also to better um, improve the pipeline, you know, for my, whether it's for minority students, whether it's for women physicians, whether it's for, you know, people, the disparities that that are exist in, in the people who desire to do academia, like all these things, there's so much to fix. So I think rather than being overwhelmed by all the things that are broken, I think I, I hope <laughs> to, to keep being excited about all the potential for change. And hopefully I will be able to make um, changes. And I think the one, if I learn one thing about science is that you should never be discouraged about a small change because it is a change nonetheless. I mean, that's, I think in the lab, you, sh- you're, you learn to celebrate every little thing. <laughs> and so if I can keep that up and I will hopefully do so by being around people who, who do that, who exemplify that and um, who, who value me as a human being as a whole. And they, they value about my happiness and in my life outside of the hospital as well. And they do that themselves as well. I think, that's what I am excited about. Like whatever I, I don't know what my career will look like, but I hope that I keep that passion, keep thinking about, cause it's truly, it's a privilege, right? Like me being here is bonkers. <laughs> and yet here I am. Like it's, it's, it's through so many different, you know, teachers and mentors. It's the result of them and they're all their work. And of course, you know, I'm, but I, I would not be here for them. And so because it's so incredulous, because it's such a privilege, I, I hope I keep that mindset rather than feeling like, oh, I'm trapped in this, you know, in this career path and this is all I know. So what else can I do? I think if you can be cynical and think that way, and I hope that I will never have to think like that because there'll be plenty of mentors around me who will remind me <laughs> that that is not the case. Yeah, that sounds so fascinating. And um, I was looking up your resume and the work that you've done, your research particularly, and Mm -hmm. especially as someone who has earned their PhD now, how did you find your passion in like basic science research, especially Mm -hmm. at the intersection of genetics and neuroscience slash psychiatry? And then then that has now led you to pursue anesthesiology. So I was just Mm -hmm. wondering what that transition was like for you and how did you even get started? Yeah. So I remember it was back in high school that I learned the term molecular biology. And as someone who's curious, molecular biology to me is just like uh, understanding the mechanism of everything <laughs> to some extent. I know if you can go down to physics, but the the biology things were what excited me. And then so I, I when in Princeton, I joined a lab 
um, that was doing breast cancer metastasis. And I did that for a while, but I, I think coming out of it and when I all, all the way to the point where I was at Vanderbilt, I think I was a little scared of focusing on a couple proteins or even a whole pathway or a signaling pathway, because I, for something as complex as cancer, I felt like you're never quite getting the full picture. And obviously, you know, you, you hear miracle drugs and all of those things, but in reality, like cancer finds a way to mutate and I'm like, Oh no, we're losing to cancer. So I felt like, um, I wanted to learn a skill that allows me to look at a whole system. Uh, I think that's, that's how I got interested in, in computational, um, biology, because that allows you to look at multiple things all at once. Um, and the other thing was I knew that with a PhD, I wanted to use that time wisely because it's the last time that I'll get to be hundred percent science. Um, so I wanted to learn something this, if there was a time to be brave, this was it. And so I was like, all right, let me, let me learn something entirely new. Um, so never, I mean, I took a class in coding, but I like pass failed it at Princeton. So basically no coding background whatsoever. And, and so I think I found a, my, my PhD mentor, Doug Rutifer, he's, he's the reason I'm, I did the genetics and psychiatry because he was the one who was willing to take me on, although I knew nothing. Um, and also there's, I mean, choosing a lab and, and career, it's, it's like a mix of, you know, the opportunity arose in this case, like this amazing mentor um, was there. And then there was uh, a personal connection to the cause, to the, to the subject I was studying. So, I mean, mental, mental illness is so prevalent. You, you, you know, and probably even in your own family members who, who have um, depression of, in particular, very common. And, I had, especially when I talked to my, my PI, I had just rotated in my psychiatry clinical rotation. And I just saw how, you know, people are very, you know, like any patient doesn't have to be psychiatry, any patient, they become very complex. And while they get a diagnosis, they are, you know, many different subtypes and whatnot. And I felt like in particular in psychiatry, there's you follow this algorithm and I didn't really feel like there was a lot of, um, personalization of treatment. And so I saw the, the potential for, you know, especially science to do, to make a difference there. And, uh, and mental illness was definitely something that is, um, near and dear to heart. And so for all those reasons, so, patient interactions in addition to my own interests. I think it was a, it was a natural fit. And then the other thing about genetics is that it, it meshes the molecular biology. You get to understand the mechanisms of things. Um, but then you also get to connect with other um, applications. So for what I mean is I had, I got to work with collaborators who, uh, were in the informatics department. And in that sense, they were extracting information from the electronic health records. And the reason to do that is, like I said, diagnosis is just a very cursory or very surface level way to describe a patient. Like a EMR will have more information about them, you know, it could mean access, could mean what other diseases that they have. Um, and their whole like medical history is on there too. And so the EMR is one way to really parse out and differentiate within one diagnosis, like what, what different pools of people do patients have. And I, I think in a clinical sense, oftentimes that's what you care about, right? You, somebody, everybody with the same diagnosis, you want to know who's going to have the poor outcomes or who's going to, you know, not respond to medications are, these are types of um, questions that physicians want to know. And so, it was an opportunity to put the informatics and genetics together and put it to put it to good use. So that's, that's what I ended up doing. Um, yeah. And I think one of the um, aspect of your journey that is mm -hmm. very interesting in terms of 
your research. And then eventually you talked about a little bit about going into anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit of how you went from like potentially going in between like genetics and psychiatry, mm. neurology, and then, and where do you want to take this in the field of anesthesia if you want to continue doing research, doing yeah. residency and attending? Yeah. So I think my psychiatry rotation, so <laughs> science is one science question is one thing, but I think a huge part of choosing a specialty has to do with your personality um, and and the day to day. And I felt like psychiatry just it I knew that involved a lot of like active listening <laughs> and lots of talking and and then not only just talking, but it's like word magic, like in, in order to um get a patient's history like the discussion is your you know you you can't take a blood pressure like there's no blood test like you just have to talk or converse in a way that is so so deep and intimate in a very short amount of time and I was like oh my gosh this is so much (laughs) um and the other thing is I think there's a lot of really terrible situations for for patients who come in and I think I, I I just knew that I wasn't the type of person who's able to like leave that at work and not bring that home and so knowing those things I I knew that psychiatry was not the right fit um, and in fact so at Vanderbilt you get to do your clinical rotations before you start PhD so I had a good bit of time to like think about what I liked and didn't like or in my clinical rotations and I ended my second year with surgery and it's a time when you're, you know, all tired out. Um, and, and at the same time, I really enjoyed my time in surgery. Um, so I was like, you know, I should, I should think more about that. Like, what is it about surgery that I liked? And I think it was one, you know, I think the procedural part, I like working with my hands. As, as I said, I think it has something to do with like the arts, my interest in arts, and you're, you can, there's like visual feedback about what you're doing, uh, which I really enjoyed. And you get to know the results immediately, <laughs> like surgery went well or didn't go. It's a very kind of binary, um, to some extent. Um, so I, I think those are the things that I liked. Um, and I think part of me looking back, maybe it's that like in me doing science, I do a lot of hemming and hawing, like thinking about it. But I think like in the, in in the clinical space, I almost like to complement that with something that is pretty clear cut. Like these are the tasks I've done it moving on, you know, (laughs) like bam, boom. So I think I like that. Um, and so I actually didn't really know much about anesthesiology until my friend, my good friend, um, was applying to anesthesiology and she told me like, you should think about that if you like procedural things. Um, and so I, uh, I, and as I explored it, I love that it's, it's, it's a very versatile field. Um, like if you, an anesthesiologist day could be anything, it could be a full day in clinic. It could be a full day in the OR. It could be a full day in like, uh, in the outpatient setting, just determining whether people are, you know, fit to have surgery. And, and so I love the, the diversity of workplace in that regard. Also, it's a field that is just collaborative by nature. You work with all these different surgery fields. And of course you are, you have to interact with so many different other healthcare professionals, like, um, you know, CRNAs and PAs, and there's different levels uh, that you just all have to work as a team. I really like that. And, and the reason I like that is because I think the, and and a good bit, the reason I chose genetics and informatics was to keep my options open to some extent. I knew it's something that I could take anywhere. Um, So, because I think ultimately every clinical problem boils down to you know, you have a group of patients with this really common comorbidity, you probably want to know which one is going to have the worst outcome. Like, who, who is it? And that can be applied to literally any field. Um, and I think for anesthesiologists, we have to make decisions um, pretty quickly. 
um, whether it's in the ICU or even in the OR or even before, you know, OR, you have to make a decision. Is this person going to surgery or not? So in terms of the decision-making, I felt that this was a, a natural way to make use of the data. Um, cause I think if you had all the time in the world, you can chart review, like that's the, probably the best way to garner data. But if you don't have that time, and especially if you don't know the patient very well, you are probably not the PCP, um, then you sometimes have to rely on other things. And I felt like this is a good implementation and good use of the technology that we have. Um, so that made sense as well. And, uh, and yeah, I think it's just a feel that the personality works really well in terms of, you know, I'm a nomad. I feel like I had a pretty circuitous journey and anesthesiology is a field where they're really open to that. There's so many people like our past PD was a cardiothoracic surgeon. And then he decided to do anesthesiology. <laughs> like there's plenty of people who have really differing backgrounds or somebody who was trained in pediatrics and they come to anesthesia because they want to do pediatric anesthesiology. So they're really open to people in all walks of life coming in. And I really like that as well. I really believe in that um, philosophy that, that, and this is a journey and you're welcome anytime kind of a mentality. I, I really like that as well. And uh, yeah, I think in terms of going forward, I think I, I talked a, a lot about, yeah, how the science would work. And in terms of like subspecialty, I have no idea. I'm pretty open-minded. I'll see, like, I'm sure once I go do it, there'll be things that attract me. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, you talked a lot about sciences and being involved in medicine, but also talked a lot about mentorship, um, mm -hmm. what that meant for you when you were growing up and also in medical school. So we noticed that you were involved in APMSA in various mm -hmm. roles, ranging from regional director to the advocacy chair. Yeah. So how has that experience or any other leadership experience that you want to elaborate on um, impacted you as a clinician and as a future leader? Hmm. I think for me, leadership just means that, or at least when I took up leadership roles, it was mainly from, I saw a problem and I had a clear idea what I wanted to do with that problem <laughs> and somebody needed to do it and you just step up. And, and so that's kind of how it went. Basically, I think a big part of leadership is vision. Um, and as I was doing different APAMSA roles, I was mainly from the fact that I was in Nashville. I think I know I transitioned, you know, different cultures and countries throughout my life, but I think a big culture shock, one of the bigger ones I, I think was moving to Nashville in 2016. Um, it was election year. I've never been away, you know, Northeast was where my, my, you know, family and friends were. And so it was truly, uh, I felt like the first time where I had like uprooted to some sense, you know, I don't know anyone in Nashville and I was moving there. And the, the other thing is I think in most big cities, but I think yeah, in most big cities, there are plenty of transplants. There are people who, you know, who are kind of same boat, right? They're both, they're also uprooted. So we're like, let's create our own family of uprooted folks. <laughs> but I feel like in, in Nashville, there is a good, like there, there are people who have family pretty close by. And so it's not that I, you know, people weren't welcoming, but it was just that people just had their own you know, pre-made communities to go back to. Um, and so I, it was challenging to make, to find my own community because of that. So that was one thing. But I think another was while I was in Princeton and at, and in Philadelphia, I never really reconciled or it never occurred to me that I was different. I don't think I ever thought about I'm Asian. I just, I just am. I never have to think about that. And then I came to Nashville and suddenly I was just like, oh, I'm the odd one out. <laughs> and so feeling that um, in the community, but also in the way that, you know, Asian students tend to be treated. Um, and it's not like, you know, they're, they're maltreated, but like in the beginning, 
we didn't know Asian students were unclear. Like, do we fit under a diversity office? Like, if we have qualms, like, who do we go to? <laughs> you know, you feel a little lost. And then even in terms of, like, thinking about, you know, giving back to the community, like, there's no, like, Asian communities. And so I think before, you know, anti-Asian racism was a thing, people were like, we don't have to think about that because it doesn't apply. And so that was a, that was a, that was a, that was salient to me. And then I think APAMSA was this huge outlet. Cause I, I remember I went to the national conference and there were so many Asian medical students. I was like, Oh my gosh. And it was LA of all places. So I was like, Whoa, this is like night and day so different. And people were talking about, you know, Asian American history and what microaggressions are and like how like there is bias. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like all the things that I was like in the back of my head that I was like, I think this is a case. Like I feel different, but like I can't, I can't really verbalize it. And then it was, it was very validating for sure. Um, and so I was like, okay, like this, this needs to be a thing. And also I want this kind of like camaraderie for schools like you know, those in Nashville. And so that's how I got involved in the regional director, because then you get connected to all the Southern schools. So we did our little conference. And then after that, I did membership director, then you get connected to like all over um, half of the regions. And then I started realizing that, oh, like the New York schools, like they feel the same, like Asians are not even a minority there. And so I realized that it's like these issues are not because, you know, Asians are not like it's it's not based on the community that you're in, even if there are Asians in your community, like there's still these problems because it's like an institutional thing. And then and so that's that's why then I did membership and then I decided, okay, I'm going to bring these you know, the things that I've seen on my membership director, I'm going to make sure that it gets changed. So that I then that's when I did my, um, a, that's what led me to do the app API advocacy director. And right after I took that role, the 2020 uh, Atlanta shootings happened, like COVID happened, all these things happened. And there was a huge need for people who were just bursting. They needed to like hear it. They needed to say it that, you know, anti-Asian racism a thing and that it's not just for you know the our prestige our medical license does not protect us we're not any special and we should not feel like you know just because we're here we may feel conditioned that you know you put your head down and do your work and it will reward you it was not the case it did not reward us at all like during COVID and so I think it was a great awakening. Um, there was definitely lots of passion. And it was also, um, and at this point, I've been in, you know, I've been at Vanderbilt for, for a while at that point. And it was crazy to see people who are talking about anti-Asian racism, because initially we would, uh, among the Asian students, we would talk about it and about microaggressions that happen you know, during clerkships and whatnot, but we would end those kind of discussions with like, this is how you get around it. You never, we never could discuss it, you know, how to fix it. Cause it was like an institutional thing. What are we going to do? But for the first time we had people who weren't Asian, who are Dean, deans were there, you know, faculty were there and non-Asian um, students and allies were there. And I think that was such a big deal that we even got to talk about this openly and say this is a problem and I think along with Black Lives Matter there's so many things that are still ongoing but I think even being able to talk about that and we can't ignore it anymore no school can ignore that this happens um so I think that was a big deal and seeing you know all these different students and chapters and everywhere medical students everywhere get fired up about it. I think that was such a big moment um, for me. So that certainly uh, changed. That, that was a big deal. It was uh, meaningful. And I think the other thing is it allowed me to 
really learn about the history of Asian Americans in the United States. And I mean, I never got, you know, I never took a class on it and during college or anything. And to be fair, I have a very different trajectory to probably a lot of the Asian American immigrants who come here. Um, but I think the the thing that COVID told us is that it doesn't matter what your background is. Like if you're, if you look a certain way, you're going to be treated the same. And so it's, I think, and then you realize the underlying theme with Black Lives Matters and the way it dovetails is that if one minority gets, you know, has discrimination, you think you're going to be safe from it? No, it's going to jump to you as well. So it's like you have to look out for each other. Like this is not just a, oh, this is a specifically Black thing or this is a specific Asian thing. It applies to everyone. Um, so that was that. But also reconciling with the rich history that Asian Americans face and how even within the a certain ethnic group, their their route and the path that they came to the United States will almost like determine their fate forever. You know, even with Chinese immigrants, the ones who came in the gold rush is very different from the people who came in with the STEM STEM visa. And, and so, you know, this facade that we have like, oh, Asians are like, you know, expected, you know, list these things and it's just a fallacy like we should be allowed to be you know can we be a blank slate please <laughs> and, and and fill it and have our own whatever aspirations we have we shouldn't be limited by whatever expectations a certain appearance a complexion like it shouldn't be limiting um so i think learning the history was was and the opportunity to kind of learn that on my own i think was also another big learning point for me yeah, from like what you said, two things jumped out to me. One was the idea of model minority myth just sure. keeps pushing around. So I appreciate you sharing your experiences with that. And mm -hmm. also, um, we just had MLK Day a few days back. So yeah. like you said, when you were talking about how one minority, when they get treated differently, nobody is safe. So like injustice anywhere is a threat to mm -hmm. justice everywhere. So that just like, you know, stood out to me. And I really appreciate you being so vulnerable and like, you know, sharing your experiences with it, because to a lot of extent, I feel that too. And I'm yeah. also in the Northeast right now. So mm -hmm. it's just like, we have to like stand up for one another, you know? So yeah. thank you again for sharing. Yeah, I also want to echo that because thinking about how a lot of, um, especially some narratives are really turning minorities against each other, mm -hmm. um, like just thinking about certain lawsuits, yeah. about like how a lot of minorities are against affirmative action and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it, it's very interesting. So I really appreciate you sharing that, mm -hmm. uh, your experience. So, um, and I want to try like kind of going to another direction that is slightly lighter and hopefully brighter. Um, it's mm -hmm. about just, I think you talked a lot about your interests outside of uh, the academics with creative arts. You also mm -hmm. are very involved. I see like on your bio on the MSTP website, there's a lot of things that you love to do. So yeah. we want to know what is your typical day like when you have some free time and also mm -hmm. uh, how do you create this work-life balance for you? Mm. Oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to answer the work-life balance. <laughs> but uh the typical day so I I like to start early because I feel like especially when you gone through surgery and you realize oh my gosh you could, there's so much can be done like until eight <laughs> so I start early not like crazy early I'd say like six or so um and then I'll do I'm really in into like just especially with COVID I, I do like um high intensity interval workout or I recently got really into um like Pilates or yoga like either of those things whatever I feel like doing that day I'll probably do like an hour ish of that and then I'll shower eat breakfast um and then in terms of what I'll do next that's a that's a big question I think the thing if we have a good bit of time my husband and I like to explore nature very slowly that could be like kayaking could be hiking um, um especially if there's a good view to be found I like good views <laughs> it's a rewarding after like a really intense hike um so definitely believe in like you know 
moving to get your thoughts. Um, like I remember in college when I couldn't like figure out what to write for my essay, I would just like go for a walk. And then while I walk, like ideas will come through. So um, definitely really believe in the anti-stress uh, properties of that. Um, and then in terms of like creative things, I think it's really evolved. I think before, obviously, I would like stick to, you know, like the actual arts, like acrylic painting or like watercolor. But recently, like I've been dabbling into like video editing as well. And so like I video edited our, our wedding video, especially because my parents were there. But I mean, a good bit of the ceremony was in English. So they're like, what's <laughs> what's going on <laughs> and then they they did their speech um in korean and so it, there was a need for subtitles is what i'm trying to say and so i was like doing all that it was a lot of work but it was it was really great they really appreciate it so we recently went on a on a um uh like my husband's family and i we took a we took a trip and so like putting together um videos that we took from then to like share it's also something that I'm interested in doing, uh, especially before I start residency. <laughs> it's one of my one of my uh, to do's. Um, and then recently, uh, let's see. If I'm watching TV, I like to knit. Knitting is a something that I started in high school, but really became a thing in medical school. Um, I think again, it's the theme of slowly creating something um and the other thing is knitting isn't just about it's really about like the journey it's about like the making because if you wanted just socks you'll just go buy socks but it's about like the whole making and the the feeling of the yarn uh, as you're doing it and like seeing it um in progress again like I'm a very tactile feedback kind of person <laughs> as I'm realizing and so that's that's something that I've been doing quite a bit um what else? I think uh, my husband and I like to play Stardew Valley. It's a video game. It's very, very chill. I mean, it's like a farming game. You can spend those days whatever you want. So it's a very like low stress farming game <laughs> um, that I like to do with my husband as well. And uh, we'll probably like my husband will cook something. He's the cook in the house. So he'll probably be cooking and I'll I'll try to be not in the way <laughs> in the kitchen <laughs> and then yeah and then we'll kind of end uh probably with some tv if it was any weekday um oh also we have a we have a cat so somewhere in there we'll probably be playing with a cat as well she loves running around uh, we have like a long house and so there's a really long corridor so she like uses it as a track. So we chase her and she chases us back. So those are fun. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's, that's my, that's my day with my interest sprinkled in it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that sounds very um, balanced to me. So I feel like the tips and tricks that you shared are definitely going to be useful. So we're going to transition into our next segment. We've gotten to know you a lot better in that, in this past hour, um, this next segment is called Final Four Fun Questions. So these okay. are rapid fire style questions. They don't oh have gosh. to be right. um, short. If you want them, if you want to elaborate, you definitely can. Okay. Um, but I'll start us off with the first question. Okay. Um, if you had to name this chapter of your life, um, what would you title it? Oh gosh. Uh, transition. <laughs> That's boring. <laughs> That's or okay. let's this see hold no on. judgment uh that's been a common yeah. word i'm not gonna lie especially for people who are going through residency interviews yeah um, it's like or maybe i'll i'll be or... like jumping to the real deal or something <laughs> i like that catch it's like real deal like you're actually actually doing the thing that you've been <laughs> so long for so yeah jump to the real deal <laughs> <laughs> um all right. Second question. I think it's also a little bit about your interest that you have indicated. Mm. Which makes you which, which will make you more upset? Losing the streak on Duolingo or losing the streak on New York Times Crossword Puzzle? Oh my God. So I actually have an incredible streak in both of them. 
So I have, I think I, yeah, I'm on my 802 day streak on Duolingo. And in terms of my crossword, let's see. I forget the last time I checked. Uh, oh my God. That's, I did it during like in the start of COVID. So it's probably over two years at this point. Let's see. Yeah, I'm on a 994-day streak, my New York Times. So both will be very upsetting, but Duolingo has tons of, like, streak repair. So I'll be more upset about my New York Times. You said 999? 994-day streak. Oh, wow. (laughs) So we're hoping that continues even through intern year for both of us. We'll see. (laughs) This might be a repetitive question, um, considering you just answered a lot about, you know, your hobbies. But what is your favorite creative activity to do when you have some free time? Knitting. Mm. <laughs> What's the difference between knitting and um, crocheting? I was thinking of picking up one of those two, but which, which is easier? Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> I think crochet is easier um, because it's a very forgiving uh, way of creating things in that it's it you can like add on a stitch literally anywhere, whereas knitting can be knitting is done in a like unidirectional way um and so but I personally love the look of knitting um I I like the like uniform v uh look of knitting (laughs) it looks neat so I like it (laughs) nice nice and the last question that we have is what is one thing that many people don't know about you oh gosh um I don't know. I feel like I'm an open book. Hmm. I'm not I'm not sure. Most of it. <laughs> I mean, it was actually one of the harder questions in residency. And I think I said, and I think later on, I mean, I said something and I was like, oh, that was a bad answer. But one, one that I came up with was like, I was in, I was in the swim team in high school and I also did water polo, <laughs> but it was because like anyone could join. <laughs> so it was not because of skill, but it was like, come on. Like, <laughs> so I, I team camaraderie love that. <laughs> yeah. But in the end, I think swimming also taught me a lot about just like, cause swimming is a very like beat your own record kind of a sport. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I mean it's a sport but it's not a team sport and so I feel like you're training and training and training just to be yourself and so I think it was it trained me to be very patient in that process so yeah that that might be that was the fourth question in our segment we have really enjoyed getting to know you and spending this half uh, this hour with you but before we let you go um we have one final question for you um that hopefully you can answer. If you were to leave our listeners with one thing that you would want to, would you would want them to take away from the from this podcast episode? What would it be? I think to believe in your potential. I think as international students, especially if they're coming to this podcast, they're probably thinking medicine. Um, there are plenty of reasons to be discouraged. Um, and I myself was very discouraged. <laughs> um, and, and part of it is, you know, you, especially now that I'm applying to residency with a different status, because I applied for a green card, it's, it's like night and day. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm like desired. <laughs> and like in med school, I was not, you know? And so it's like, this is what I was missing out on. But I think, you know, I think it's, it's so important when so many people are saying "Mm, you're not good enough for us that you need to believe in yourself. And it may be like in my case, for whatever reason, it worked out. Like somehow I got into medical school, got into MD, PhD. This is what it is. But I think even if that was not the case, I don't think that would have been the end of my life. Never. I think the same me still would have had the same passion and I would have just explored that in a different way. And now that I've come to med school, there's so many different ways to exert your interest in science and in medicine that does not have to be through 
strictly an MD or an MD PhD pathway. There are many different ways. So I think, I think it's so important for people thinking about this career path to think about, you know, think about your whys, think about what, what you believe yourself to be special. And I think you really need those in the end to stick to. And if you feel like that's not strong enough where you need some more time to explore that I think it's so valuable to to get it because it's those the why and what what your value is um like knowing your self-worth that's what's going to carry you through the times when it seems like nobody knows your worth and so I think that's super important and also just make sure that you make every choice as a as a conscious decision i think you should never feel like oh you know because i think right after princeton i felt like oh i have a science degree i mean what else am i going to do with it you know <laughs> other than like a phd or an md but i think if that's what's in your mind you should like look further there are many ways to that's not the way to choose your career is all I'm trying to say. Um, just because, you know, like I said, the, your why should be something um, more substantial than, oh, I'd had no other choice. Um, and for me, I was, I was able to find those things while I was at Penn seeing the patients. And I think the connections that I made and the fact that I was energized by seeing patients is probably why I was, I knew that the MD part even if it was the harder part, even if that's the part that I required most hoops out of all the career path, it made sense for me. And so I think, uh, yeah, especially for our international students, like, yeah, that would be my parting words. Thank you again. We've been so fortunate to spend, you know, so much time with you and you've been more than generous. So um, thank mm -hmm. you again. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was Thanks really so much. special to be part of this. <laughs> Wow, how incredible this episode, and equally how incredible is Juan. I cannot agree with Juan more, and I hope all of our listeners can believe in your potential and know your self-worth throughout this journey. You have achieved so much to get to where you are already, and the entire F1 pod community are your firm believers and supporters. So, Ragavi, who do we have next as we head into the latter half of season two? So next week, we're interviewing Shin, who is a recent transplant to Boston, starting their emergency medicine residency at Mass General Brigham. Shin came to the U.S. at the age of 18 and completed their bachelor's at UC Berkeley and then went to SoCal for their medical degree at UCLA. And during medical school, Shin was particularly passionate in language um, access and created a medical Mandarin course at UCLA. I mean, how cool is that? And when they're not busy in the ER, Shin is actually a FAA certified private pilot and is drawn towards music and the outdoors. So just a very well-rounded and a unique individual that you'll get to hear incredible stories about next week. Yeah, so stay tuned for next week. But in the meantime, we hope you have a wonderful summer. Enjoy the beautiful weather wherever you are. And let's dial back in in two weeks. episodes will be released every other week on Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Make sure you're connected with us on Instagram and Twitter, as we would love to hear from you on social media. Please also give us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your support means a lot to us.